changing time zones, we are changing locations, and it becomes very obvious as we look at these first words in Revelation chapter 4 verse 1, it says, after these things, I looked and behold a door standing open in heaven, and the first voice which I heard was like a trumpet speaking with me saying, come up here. And I will show you things which must take place, say it, after this, which causes us to say, after what? And Father, as, even as Danny prayed, Lord, we want to have ears to hear. Lord, we ask for wisdom, Lord, that we could understand. But Lord, most importantly, we ask that God that your spirit would speak to us. Lord, we want to understand this thing from your point of view, not from man's. Not from mine, just from yours. And so, Lord, bless our time here this morning in Jesus' name. And all God's people said, amen. amen. Less to imagine is our theme this morning. We know the song, I can... Okay, well, it's going to be less to imagine because we're actually going to travel through here. And as we travel through this chapter, we are going to discover a few things. So look at this. These first three words in verse 1, after these things. As you read through your Bible, when you come across something like this, you should always stop and ask yourself, ask after what things? So I want to underline that, after these things, because we're going to change time zones and the reason I know that is if you go back to chapter 1, verse 19, remember in chapter 1, verse 19, there is the outline of this entire book. We outlined it when we started. Hopefully you wrote it down. It says, write the things which you have seen, past tense, chapter 1. John had already seen those things. And then Jesus tells him, hey, write those things. And then he, next he says, write the things which are present tense, active, ongoing churches in chapters 2 and 3, which make up the complete church. And when the church age comes to a close, when Jesus comes and claims his bride off this earth, time zone number three, and the things which will take place after this. That's all future. Or, for you and me this morning, that's chapter 4 to the end of the book. After these Things. Automatic response always has to be after what things. You go back and look at chapter 1, verse 19. You get the breakdown of the book. And so you can see God in his word makes it very logical and very practical if we just let the living word of God speak for himself. It gets complicated when we're, we're going to try and understand it all. Because honestly, if someone says they understand it all, they're lying to you. There are so many things in here, nobody knows. It says, you know, this guy has this opinion, this guy has this opinion, this guy has this opinion about this one thing. Who's right? Nobody knows. The only one time you're going to really know is when what? When you get there, okay? So we're not going to try and go, well, this is this and this is this, because that's just my opinion. Why can't we just leave it as a mystery? Waiting for further revelation when we step in. Now, you may like to read people that say, this is this, this is this, this is that. That's great. I hope they're right. We're not going to take that approach. After these things are simply the things that John had previously seen and wrote down in chapters 1 through 3. And remember, remember what was in those chapters? First, in chapter 1, we saw the description of Jesus in heaven and, and then this continual reminder that Jesus is coming back. All, multiple times we saw that. We see the present-day church and the history of the complete church in chapters 2 and 3 with Jesus telling them, hey, you need to be ready. I'm coming back. You need to be, be on guard. All, all of these things. And then after these things, in chapter 4, is what John is referring to as the things which will take place after this. Simple. After these things. What things? The previous chapters. We'll read no more about the church's existence on this earth from chapter 4 on to the end of the book. We won't find the word church, won't find the word churches. 
But we will see the church's existence in heaven over the weeks ahead. So if you're into trivia, here's a great trivia fact. The word church is mentioned 19 times in the first three chapters of Revelation chapter 1 through 3. Take a guess at how many times it's in chapters 4 through 22. The answer would be zero. No, there's one. But we're going to look at it and determine there's actually zero references to the church after chapter 3 is over. Go to the end of the book, chapter 22. Look what it says. Chapter 22, verse 16. Jesus is wrapping up his whole complete thought of this whole book. Here's what he says. I, Jesus, have sent my angel to testify to you, John, these things in the churches. I am the root and the offspring of David, the bright and morning star. So in context, as Jesus signs off at the end of his book, yes, he's addressing the church on earth, but he's doing so as a, now that you have the whole thing down, John, now that you know how it's all going to go down, you know when the rapture of the church is going to happen? You know it all. So get after it. Be looking for the rapture of the bride of Christ. Jesus is saying, look, I am the originator of this book. I sent my angel so that you could all understand these things. So go get busy. Okay? He's not like the chapter 22 is over, then he says this. No. He gives them the whole book back in 96 AD. So the real answer to my original question is, how many times does the word church or churches shows up in chapters 4 to 20? Zero. Or 22. It's zero. Why? I, simple answer. The rapture of the church has taken place. And we see that in chapters 4 and 5. Today we just get to see the throne and we get to see one who sits on the throne. Next week, great evidence. And I, You want an assignment? Go look and read chapter 5. Look for the evidence that determines we are actually in heaven. Chapter 6, the tribulation period starts. But go looking for it. If you go looking for it in chapter 5, you will find the evidence of we're not on this earth, that we, the church, are in heaven. She's safely tucked away as the wrath of Almighty God is poured out on a Christ-rejecting world. You see, God's judgment is one thing. God's discipline is another You read through the entire Old Testament, God is constantly disciplining the nation of Israel, trying to get them to do and be where they need to be. But when you read about Noah, that's God's judgment on the world. You read about Sodom and Gomorrah, that's God's judgment upon Sodom and Gomorrah. Here in our Bibles, chapters Six, or you know, we can start at chapter four, but chapter six, where the seven year tribulation starts all the way to the end, that's God's judgment. It's not his discipline, it's his judgment. And it makes sense. Why? Because the church is already safely tucked away. Why discipline the church anymore? Like we saw in the seven letters to the seven churches. Jesus would say, Look, you got this going, but you need to change this. It was his discipline. Remember what he said last week? As, as many as I love, I. Starts with a R, I I rebuke and chasten. Therefore, be zealous and repent. And so the church is safely tucked away in heaven. The seven years of all hell breaking loose, chapter 6 through through chapter 19, that's what we would call the seven-year tribulation period. You know, there's lots of other... Names for it. Chapter 20, the devil's bound for a thousand years. And, and those who had received Jesus as the Lord of their life prior to that are going to rule and reign with Jesus for a thousand years. That's us. The devil is going to get bound. We're going to reign with Jesus Christ for a thousand years. We call that the millennial reign of Christ, if you want a big term. And at the end of the thousand years, the devils let loose those earth dwellers that we were ruling over that had babies and, and they had more babies and there's a lot of people can be born in a thousand years. It says the devils let loose and he goes out and deceives the nations to go take on God. How well do you think that battle goes? It's over before it begins. And then in chapter 20, the unsaved. 
Those who are not born again, they're judged, judged at the great white throne judgment. Their names are not found in the lake of, or found in the book of life, so they're cast into the lake of fire where the devil, the Antichrist, the beast, and his false prophet are. And then in chapter 21, 21 and 22, we see the new heaven coming down out of Jerusalem. Why? Because the new heaven, or because the old heaven and this old earth have been dissolved, been destroyed. Don't let anybody say, well, God's not going to destroy this earth. Um, he did it with a flood. He destroyed cities with fire. We're going to see it here. You know, if you look at chapter 21, it says, you know, John says, I saw a new heaven and a new earth because the former heaven and earth had been passed away and there is no longer any sea. No more oceans. Peter puts it this way in 2 Peter chapter 3, verse 11. If you want to turn backwards a couple pages, you'll find it. Here's what he says. Therefore, since all these things will be dissolved, he's talking about heaven and earth. You can go read the whole chapter next week, or tonight, chapter 3, 2 Peter. Since all of these things are going to be dissolved, what manner of persons ought you to be in holy conduct and godliness, looking for and hastening the coming of the day of God, because of which the heavens will be dissolved, being on fire, and the elements will melt with fervent heat. Anybody want to try and guess what that uh, what that means? It's first grade reading level. Something's going to be destroyed. It's going to be dissolved. You know, you could take something and dissolve it in water. Where did it go? It's gone. The rest of chapter 21, it's just John detailing out this one city in chapter 22. So that's where we're heading. We're heading to the new heaven and the, uh, and the new earth in chapter 21 and 22. But for today... Where after these things are passed. There is a definite time zone change here. There's things happening right here with these words. After the church age has come to a close in chapters 2 and 3, I looked and behold a door, a door standing open in heaven. Does that encourage you? It should. It encourages me. Now, the reason I make this big deal about the pre-trib rapture is because, like I said last week, there's those of us who believe that the church is removed from the tribulation period during those seven years where God's going to bring his wrath upon all mankind. There's others who believe that they're going to go through three and a half years of it. They say, well, the first three and a half years with the Antichrist are nice. The last three is really bad. I totally disagree with that. Go start reading chapter 6, you'll find out why. And then those, those we call post-toasties, they believe that the church is going to go through the entire tribulation period, and then at the end of the tribulation period, then God will redeem them off the earth. So they're looking for the Antichrist, we're looking for the return of Christ. You can decide which one you want to be, but for me and my house and all of Calvary Chapel, we're looking for pre-trib. We're looking for the rapture of the church. We're looking for the return of Jesus Christ. Even as Paul, the apostle, wrote over and over and over. And so John says here, there's a door. It's still open in heaven. There's not a sign on it that says, sorry, closed. There's not a sign on it that says, we'll return at 8 a.m. Remember all the stories and parables that Jesus taught and said things like this? When once the master of the house has risen up and shut the door, remember who those were? They're the ones going, Lord, Lord, open to us. And Jesus says, depart from me, I never knew you. Not I knew you at one time, you're doing really good, what happened? No, he says, I never knew you. And when they went to buy, the bridegroom came, and those who were ready went in with him to the wedding, and the door was, it was shut. But today, we see it because John saw it, and he is declaring to us that the door is open. And there is a voice saying, hey, John, come on up. You know those stubborn people in your life that don't want to give their lives to Christ? Don't give up on them. The door's still open. Pray for them. Share the gospel with them. You don't have to beat them up. If, if they don't turn to Christ the first time you share with them, just start praying for them. And don't give up praying for them. You got to pray. Don't underestimate you praying, asking God to remove the scales from their eyes that they will turn to Jesus. But you don't have to sit there and preach the gospel to them over and over and over. You can if that's what God's calling you to do, but you got to pray for them. I believe as well as all other pre-trib people that this is where the rapture of the church takes place, right here, where he says, a door is open and he hears these voices. 
Hey, come on up. Could you imagine Jesus saying that? Hey, come on up. There goes the church. It's going to be pretty amazing. Where the removal of all of those who are truly saved that had turned to Jesus and had declared him as the master of their life are removed off of this earth prior to God sending down his judgment. To me, that just makes sense. There's a lot of the Bible I don't understand, but there is nothing that God has in this book that does not make sense to me, even though I don't understand it. The rapture of the bride of Jesus Christ takes place when the church's witness and ministry on this earth are complete. So we just finished chapter 3, the conclusion of the lukewarm church last week, the last day's church. The door will be opened in the heaven and the trump of God shall sound and we who are alive and remain will be caught up together with them. With who? With those who are already preceded us, Paul says. And we who are alive and remain will be caught up together to meet them. It, with the Lord in the air, so shall, we shall always be him. That was the Apostle Paul who wrote half the books of the New Testament. He lived his life expecting to go. And not go dying, go as a live, living person. Let me read it to you again. And the trump of God shall sound, and we who are alive and remain will be caught up together with them to meet the Lord in the air, and so shall we ever be with the Lord. Paul was living his life that way. I don't know what he was looking for if it wasn't the rapture of the church, 1 Thessalonians 4.16. Paul, again, writing about the rapture event in 1 Corinthians 15.51, says this, I show you a mystery. Not all will die. Well, if they're not all going to die, what's going to happen to them? They're going to go up. I show you a mystery. Not all will die. But we will all be changed. In a moment, in a twinkling, that's faster than a blink, and a twinkling out of an eye at the last trump. There'll be no time to get ready. When Jesus comes for his bride, boom, it's over before it starts. It's not like, hey, are you ready? The pastor's about ready to start the service. No, no, there's no, you know, you know those weddings never start on time per, because we kind of plan it that way. That way people get there and don't interrupt the beginning. But, you know, you, you're in this, you know, you know, you're in with the guys and then you're over here with the gals and you always knock before you go in there because you don't know what they're doing in there. And, and it's like, and then, it, and then there's the final knock. Hey, it, it, we got to go right now. Well, that's what it's going to be. Jesus is going to say, hey, come on, we're going to go right now. But there's going to be no knocking. He's just going to come and grab us. 1 Thessalonians, he defines it as the trump of God. In 1 Corinthians, Paul writes the last trump. Here John writes, the voice is like a trumpet. It's very loud. It's very clear saying, come up here and I will show you the things. Look what it says. Which must be after these things. We that hold to a pre-trib view of the rapture of the church, look at this and say, this is us being called up when Jesus comes for his bride. Some people, though, foolishly or ignorantly say the word rapture isn't in the Bible. Boy, you got me on that one. You're right, it's not. Not in our English Bible. However, if we look at the Latin Bible that was written before the English Bible, some say the Latin Vulgate was written over a thousand years ago where the English Bible was written around the end of the 1500s. And as we go looking, the Greek word for caught up in the passage, caught up together with the Lord is harpazo, which means to be, listen to this definition, caught up, violently taken away, to seize or snatch away, to carry off by force, to pluck or pull by force. So, you, you know, how many have seen those end time movies? You know, all you see is a pile of clothes. You want to know why? Because when Jesus yanks you up, man, you're going to go so fast. Whoom, them suckers are just going to fall right off of you. You know, they think you inside you just dissolve. I don't think that's right. I mean, th- to seize or snatch away, to be violently taken away, to pluck or pull up by force. It's going to be over before it happens. The Latin version of the Bible, which is called the Latin Vulgate, translates the Greek word harpazo into raptus, which means the same as harpazo in the Greek. Raptus is the Latin word for caught up. So in the English Bible, we've translated it caught up. The Latin Vulgate Bible would be raptus, from which we get our word rapture. So it's there. It's just not in our English Bible. So this ultimately tells us the church is going to be caught up to be with the Lord before 
the seven-year tribulation period on this earth begins. Now, the smart people also say the word millennium isn't in the Bible, that the millennial reign of Christ is just not there. They say you Christians need to stop talking about and stop making these things up. Of course, they're selling books when they say those things. But again, they're smart. But we're just simple folk. And Jesus tells us, we who are simple and foolish, we will confound those who are complicated and wise. Millennium is from the Latin word millianum. Milli is a thousand, annum is, a, is years. So that word also comes from the Latin as a thousand years. You just got to go get out of the English Bible and go back to the Latin one. It's translated in your Bible, and we shall live and reign with Jesus for a thousand years. We shall live and reign with Jesus, millianum. It's there. The millennial reign of Christ, Revelation 20, verse 6. We'll look at it when we get there. I think, personally think, it pays to be simple rather than stuffy and smart because they become so smart they miss the, the obvious. The first voice which John heard as he walked through the open door was like a trumpet speaking with me saying, come up here and I will show you these things which must take place after this. Now, as we move forward, we got to step into John's shoes. You know, the greatest, the, if you want to really understand your Bible as you read it, you got to get into the people's shoes. You know, if they're, if they're in the belly of a fish, you got to climb in the fish to really understand what's going on. You better plug your nose while you do that. I mean, but if you really want to understand what's going on, you're climbing to John's shoes. We know John has been exiled on the island of Patmos with other criminals. We know he's been seeing and hearing these interesting things about how Jesus views the church. And then all of a sudden, he hears this invite. Hey, come on up here, John. And if that isn't crazy enough, the voice that's calling him up says, come up here, and I'm going to show you things which must take place after this. I mean, that had to have been crazy. It does not take a rocket science at this point to determine that the things that John is going to hear is something for a future time. Come up here and I'll show you things which must take place after this. Hey, can we go get ice cream? Yes, after the game. Can we go get a milkshake? Yes, after you get out of school. Does that mean we get to go before? No, after, 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 after. After Jesus redeems his bride, we're going to be reading about our future in chapters 4 and 5. Those that are left on the earth in chapters 6 through 20. So tune in, team. You'll have less to imagine, trust me, as we go through this to the end. And, and, and one last thing before we get to verse 2. You need to read ahead. Okay, we're going to grab chunks, big chunks. Okay, read ahead, read ahead. Immediately I was in the Spirit, John says, and behold, a throne. Now, that should get everybody excited. At least it got him excited. Behold, whoa, a throne. You know what that means? Somebody's in charge. There's a, there's a throne there. And it sets in heaven and one. Circle, underline, star it, square it, box it, triangle, do all of the above. And one sat on the throne. Now, how did this happen to John? I can only imagine... Now, there's a lot of people that are going to tell you exactly how it went. I don't know. I know he's in heaven because it says so. And me, I believe he went just like this. Now, did he get a resurrected body along the way? I don't know. But I'm, I believe he's there in body form. Others say, no, he's there in spirit. Hey, look, it's cool. We can just have a disagreement. And when we get to heaven, we'll say, hey, John, so how'd you go? And then, and then we can find out who was right and who was wrong, if we really care at that point. But no one knows. So when these people are writing, this is how it went down, I'm a skeptical, because they don't know. Just like the people that write these books, these out-of-body experience books, I'm skeptical of all of that, because Paul gets up to heaven and goes, I saw things that are, I can't even write them down. And yet people write them down all the time today. I don't know, I don't know how that's possible, but what's the first thing that John saw that caught his attention when he arrived into heaven? It was the throne of God. Man, that throne of God speaks volumes to you and I. Because if there's a throne of God, that means there's a throne of God that's watching over all of his creation. That means you and I, we never need to worry about anything. And he who sat there, 
Key on that word, he. As in, he who sat there was like, underline the word was like, doesn't mean he is Jasper. No, he, he's, he's trying to describe the one who sat there, and so he uses these stones, was like a Jasper and a Sardis stone in appearance, and there was a rainbow around the throne in appearance like an emerald. I mean, so awesome is this throne that, that John saw, and, and the, he who sat on it, he can't use human terms to describe it. He has to use a bunch of precious stones to paint us a picture of what was there. I mean, think about it. You're there. You're not imagining anymore. What does one sitting on the throne of heaven look like? What does one sitting on the throne of heaven do for your spiritual journey with Jesus? Everything is my answer. That way I don't have to worry. I know he's controlling everything. He's all-knowing. He's all-powerful. He's over all of his creation. A throne declares, I have all power to do as I choose. And the rainbow above the throne declares, I don't know, maybe that I made a promise to mankind and we'll keep it. There's varying viewpoints on that. So I don't know for, sure, for certain. All, but I do, know, I do know this, all power and all promise keeping each other in balance right here on this throne. His power is matched with his promises. And around the throne, 24 elders, or 24 thrones. And on the thrones, I saw 24 elders sitting clothed in white robes, and they had crowns of gold on their heads. So the next thing that catches John's eyes is 24 thrones. So we're this. I don't know. Some believe these are the 12 apostles and the 12 tribes that represent God's people. So they believe the 24 thrones are representatives of the church. Others believe they are actually an order of angelic beings. I mean, there's many orders of angelic beings. The Bible speaks about that. I don't know. This is what I know. There's 24 thrones. And there's 24 someone sitting on them. Do I have to know? No. I can wait till I see the real-time movie. I want to know there's 24 thrones so when I get to heaven and people are going, hey, do you know what that is? Oh, yeah, dude, that's 24 thrones. Who sat on it? Well, that looks like, oh, that looks like Peter. I mean, I don't know. Maybe it's the Pope's. I'm kidding, it's a joke. Uh, uh, but I want to at least have an idea of it. And from the throne, check this out, proceeded lightnings, thunderings, and voices. Please notice it does not say like lightning. So picture this in your mind. From the throne proceeded, we have a good idea what lightning looks like around here, right? So picture your craziest lightning storm you've ever seen. From the throne, man, it had to have been magical. But lightning and thundering and voices, seven lamps of fire. Wow, I wonder what they were. I can tell you what they were. You want to know why? Because I'm, I'm just going to keep reading. Seven lamps of fire were burning before the throne, which are the seven spirits of God. So I can tell you what those are. Seven being the complete number. So we have the completeness of the Spirit of God like we saw in Revelation chapter 1, verse 4, which cross-references over to Isaiah chapter 11, verse 2. I can tell you what that is. The greatest commentary on the Bible is the... That's what I grew up with. I, every time I think about it, I hear, hear Pastor Chuck saying that. Because see, Pastor Chuck used to say that stuff to Ricky, and then Ricky came, and I hear that stuff from Ricky. Plus, when you go through the Bible with Pastor Chuck, you hear him saying that over and over and over. So th this, I know what this is. Before the throne, there was a sea of glass like crystal. Wow, okay. What is this? No one knows. But there's lots of people that want to tell you they know. So, uh, you know, is it, is it literally a sea of glass? Like, is it mirrored glass? Beveled glass? Crushed glass? I, I don't know. It, it, is, it a, is, it as, is it as clear as glass? Or is it a slalom skier's dream, smooth as glass? I mean, we say that. You go, when you go ski, whoa, the water's smooth as glass. So which one is it? I have no idea. Take your pick. Find out at the rapture. At least you're going to know what it is. Oh, that's the sea of glass. I know what that is. Clear as crystal. I know what that is. And in the midst of the throne and around the throne were four living creatures full of eyes in front and in back. Just imagine that. 
creature's eyes. Front, back, sides. Maybe the sides. It doesn't say that. It says front and back. If you have the word beast, I'd probably cross that out. Creates kind of weird images in your mind. Living creatures is so much better. All the eyes would kind of make it hard to say, well, it's a robot. You know, I, I find it hard to believe people actually think that. You and I, we have a brain. It creates pictures in our mind from just two eyes. And yet here's these incredible creatures with eyes in the front and the back. Now, is that like two in the front and two in the back? I don't know. I kind of like hundreds, but I don't know. It's just a guess. Anyway, what do these highly intelligent, incredible creatures do? We're going to get to that. But first, let's describe them in verse 7 and blow your mind here. This is why it's so important to read ahead. So when you read ahead, you're not going to have a mind-blowing experience right here. The first living creature was like a lion. Okay. The second living creature like a calf. Wow, that's interesting. The third living creature had a face like a man. And the fourth living creature was like a flying eagle. Are you tripping out by this time, John? I mean, that, that, like, wouldn't that be a fair question to ask him? I'm pretty sure none of us imagined any of this if you hadn't read ahead. You're going, what in the world did we just read? The prophet Ezekiel had a vision of heaven, and he describes in chapters 1 and chapters 10 of his book the, this vision of heaven that he had. And if you compare this vision that John sees with the images that Ezekiel saw, Ezekiel tells us that he saw four cherubim, and as he describes them, we see he is describing exactly what John is looking at in Revelation chapter 4. So we can say, hey, these are angels. They're cherubs. Because the Bible tells us that. So they're not just living creatures. Compliments to Ezekiel, they're cherubim. Now these cherubs are an angelic order, and it would appear that these are of the highest angelic order in heaven. Some Bible commentators see this as the four faces of Jesus that are presented in the four Gospels. I don't know if that's true, but this is what they say. In the Gospel of Matthew, Jesus is presented as the Lion of the tribe of Judah. And that book was really written for the Jews. The Gospel of Mark portrays Jesus as the servant or as the ox. That book was written for the Romans. The Gospel of Luke presents Jesus as the Son of Man, the humanity of Jesus, the faces of a man. Dr. Luke, a Gentile, wrote that for Gentiles to understand. And the fourth Gospel, John's Gospel, presents Jesus as the eagle. That is not the United States, by the way. The ruler, the deity of Christ, or the divine aspects of the nature of Jesus, which was written to the church. And so, but that's, that's just, that's just what, that's, they're just guessing. John emphasizes the deity of Jesus throughout his gospel that he writes, but what this is, no one really knows for sure. But we do know this, they're four cherubs. And they're living creatures. Because we get to see that because of what Ezekiel wrote. Now, there's multiple ideas for verse 7. And again, this is, you can imagine why it is or what it is, but for now, it's clear we can see it. We're not clear really what they represent, but you know what? We are extremely clear in what they do. Look at verse 8. The four living creatures, having, each having six wings, were full of eyes around and within. Okay, I don't even know what that is. Around, I got it. Within? I don't know. And they do not rest day or night, saying, Holy, 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 Lord God Almighty, who was and is and is to come. So what do these highly super intelligent creations of God do nonstop? There's a lesson here, church. There's a lesson. I can guarantee you this. If you worship, you'll never complain. If you worship, you'll never worry. If you worship, you are going to enjoy life. If you don't, you'll worry. You'll complain. You'll use your phone during Bible study. You'll do all that stuff. Look what it says. They do not rest day or night. Who was and is and is to come. Constant nonstop worship coming from these cherubim. In Ezekiel chapter 28, we're told that prior to, to his fall, Satan was a cherubim. And God is in this dialogue with them. And this is what God says to him out of Ezekiel chapter 28, speaking to Satan. You are the seal of perfection. You are full of wisdom and perfect and beauty. You were in Eden, the garden of 
God, every precious stone was your covering, the sardis, topaz, and diamond, beryl, onks, and jasper, sapphires, turquoise, and, and emerald with gold. The workmanship of your timbrels and pipes was prepared for you on the day you were created. You were the anointed cherub who covers. I established you. You were on the holy mountain of God. You back, walked back and forth in the midst of the fiery stones. So we get a little extra from what heaven's like. There's fiery stones up there. You're perfect in your ways, God says to Satan. From the day you were created till iniquity was found in you. And we know that iniquity was found in him when he rebelled against God. Then he went down to the earth to take it out upon and seeking to destroy God's creation. And yet, as God removes Adam and Eve from the garden, God put a cherub at the gar uh, to guard the entrance so, no ma so man couldn't get back in, which happens to be the first mention of a cherub in the Bible. And yet here, we see that these ones here, these ones with eyes within and all around, they don't rest day or night. And they declare over and over and over and over for all eternity over, Holy, 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 Lord God Almighty, who was and is, is to come. Now, apparently, singing the chorus of a song more than a couple of times doesn't bother God. I understand it bothers humans, but I really don't understand that when it doesn't bother God. If these living creatures are going to continually, day and night, it's on a loop. Holy, 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 Lord God Almighty, who was and is and is to come. Now, they probably sing it different ways. I don't know. Maybe they have different styles. But these are the words, and these are the only words. So I see in God's house that he is totally fine with the repeating chorus. And notice, they don't rest day or night. Their worship is constant. I suggest to you they have no unrest either in their no-rest worship. There's a lesson there for you and me, team. There's a lesson for us when we find ourselves grumpy or complaining. You need to worship. Or you probably need to ask for forgiveness and worship. Just worship. You find yourself scared because you've got to take a test? Why don't you worship? Everybody knows a little bit of a song. If, and if you don't, I love you, Lord. I know you all know that one. <laughs> Just recall something. The devil hates it. The demons hate it. they got to go. Plus, it, I, I think we give them way too much credit anyway, but, you know, it puts me back where I need to be. We see this in 1 Thessalonians 5.16, rejoice always. Why not? The cherubs do. Spurgeon in his commentary here asked the, asked the listener, do you worship more or louder than birds today? They're always worshiping. Team, we have so much more than the birds. Do you worship more than nonstop angels seeing that you have been redeemed by the precious blood of the Lamb? That challenges me. They were created. We were redeemed. Who should worship more? I would think the redeemed ones. That challenges me. God created them and gave them one choice. He created us and gave us his son. The words who was and is and is to come tell us that God is always present all of the time. Tonight when you go to bed, God's already been there waiting for you. Tomorrow when you wake up, God's already there ready to go before you. He's ready there to commune with you. He's always there, always present. Our amazing God who adopted us into his family is past, present, and future all at the same time. Never going to learn anything new. Almighty God is outside of our space and time like we know. We only can see this little bit, but our God sees everything. Remember in, in uh, uh, Exodus chapter 3 when Moses shows up at the burning bush and he draws near to it and God starts talking to him and Moses says this, Hey, who am I supposed to say God is sending me? And God said to Moses, I am who I am. Tell, him that's, tell the children of Israel, that's my name. Tell them that's who's sending you. And God said, thus you shall say to the children of Israel, I am has sent me to you. See, only Almighty God can lay claim to the name I am. See, I might say I am over here talking to Julie, but I can't say I am over here 
talking to Julie. No, I can say I was, now I have to say I was over there talking to Julie and now I'm over here talking to Joyce. See, I am, now I'm, I was. I can't say I am, but see, God can because God can say I am here and here all at the same time. Or as Pastor Chuck would say, he'd always use his blimp analogy. You know, and everybody uses it. You know, you go to a parade, you can only see your thing. You see a little bit coming, a little bit after it leaves, but Pastor, Pastor Chuck, but God's up inside the blimp. And he sees everything all at the same time. The reason that's so critical is so you don't have to worry about nothing. Because God's doing it all for you, except he don't worry. Verse 9, whenever the living creatures give glory and honor and thanks, whenever they give glory and honor and thanks, and how often do they do that? Continually, all the time. So whenever the living creatures give glory and honor and thanks to him who sits on the throne, who lives forever and ever, okay, so that's going to be going on a long time. And every time they, they work these, these cherubim worship, the 24 elders fall down before him who sits on the throne. I hope they don't have knees. You get it? They're sitting on a throne and every time these guys worship, boom, they fall down. They better have like magical knees. Spiritual knees. And they fall down before him who sits on the throne and worship him who lives forever and ever and cast their crowns before the throne. Now, as I read this, question one is, do they have an unlimited supply of crowns? Like, do they just automatically kind of like keep coming like a bowling ball? You know, you never have to go get it. They just keep coming and just keep, you know, well, they're singing, got to fall down again. I mean, I think the more important question is, why are they casting their crowns before the throne? Why? They obviously recognize who gave them the ability to receive the crowns in the first place. That's why they're throwing them. Thus, the worth of the crown is in the giver of the crown and not the crown itself. The crown's only worth, worth who gives it to you. And so they cast those babies, singing and please, learn the words here. Again, something I heard over and over and over. Learn the words here. You know, when you get there, you don't want to, you don't want to be dumb. So learn the words here. Tell the person beside you, learn the words here. You know, Pastor Chuck would always say, hey, when you get to heaven, you'll get the tune. But right now, just learn the words. And so we're going to learn one of the songs in heaven that we'll not have to imagine about anymore. And here's what it is. Singing, you are worthy, O Lord, to receive glory and honor and power, for you created all things, and by your will they exist and were created. And team, that's why we worship Jesus today. That's why we worship him with all of our heart, mind, soul, and strength. I mean, do you see why? It's right here in verse 11. Verse 11 gives us the why as to why Jesus is worship. For you created all things, and all means, and by your will, they exist. Nothing happens without God allowing it to happen. And by your will, they exist, and we're created. Now, you and I know the cults, they don't know this, but you and I know that Jesus is God. So he's seated on the throne, for you created all things. John gets to heaven, he sees the throne. These angelic beings are doing their thing. The 24 elders are falling down and throwing their crowns. And they're throwing their crowns to the one who created all things. John chapter 1, verse 1. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through Him. Without Him, nothing was made that was made, and the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. And when did the Word become flesh and dwell among us? I hate to use this as an, as an answer. The Christmas story. You know, when, when the God-man named Jesus was born. But it wasn't Christmas Day. I'm sorry to ruin your thing there, but the creator. That's who they're worshiping here. Real quick, Genesis chapter 1, verse 1. If you need help getting there, I can help you with that. 
First four words, in the beginning, God. If, you're gonna, if you don't have, first of all, on a side note, if you don't have a problem with that, you don't have a problem with your walk. You have problems with this, I can tell you why your walk is extremely unstable. But in the beginning, Elohim, that's the Hebrew word for God, meaning more than one. In the beginning, Elohim created the heavens and the earth. But here's, here's what I want us to look at. Because we've done the whole Trinity thing before. This word created is bara in the Hebrew language. It means to create something out of nothing. So it's not evolution. So if Jesus creates all things out of nothing, and he controls all things by his power, flip back to Revelation chapter 4, verse 11. If Jesus creates all things out of nothing, controls all things by his power, then if you have not circled this, circle the word exist. For you, O God, created all things, and by your will they exist and were created. See, you and I can create a building, but we have to start with something. Jesus started with nothing and built everything that you and I see around our, the world here. And yet he holds all of it together. All of it exists today, his will. And we worry. Please understand, this is why he's God and we're not. This is why we worship and rest, not worship and worry. See, I'd rather be a spectator and watch God work than out trying to make it happen. God wants to work. He wants to use us. He wants to live his life through us. He wants us to live our lives through him. Our trying to change my life or my circumstances or work the situations and issues of life, it doesn't sound like fun. Plus, it's impossible. Who's, who in here could actually change their heart? Anybody. Uh, for the record, that's nobody raising their hand. But who, who do we know could change our hearts? Yeah, God does. Oh, got the one-way sign. God does. I mean, it's so, easy, so, it's so much easier to know and understand that Jesus, who has been worshipped in heaven from time, before time began, who created all of this out of nothing, holds my little piece of existence in his hands, and with that I can rest. That's why the Bible tells us to rest. Cast our cares upon him, and then we get a rest. Jesus says, take my yoke up upon you and learn from me. My yoke is easy, my gentle, and my, my yoke is easy, uh, uh, my, for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. I want to rest in these things. We want to worship the one who bought me and died for me. You and I were created for a loving, meaningful relationship with God, but he'll never force us into that. He, he, can, he, he has his way. He'll let you go do your way. He's not going to force you. you. You just better make sure you make it back to his way. But he has a way. The Bible tells us we exist for God's good pleasure. And it's by that same good pleasure that God desires to work in our lives. But he's not going to force himself. He'll let you go. We saw that with the Laodiceans. They're making their own decisions. They're doing their own thing. They think they're really good. But we all know they're not. But God wants to work in you. God wants to direct you. See, I personally believe God wants to make you the best whatever you do at your job. He wants to make you the best, better than everybody else there. So you get the raise? Yeah, sure, why not? But so you have a better witness. God wants to do that in all of our lives. All of our lives. So let me ask the person that's not there. Do you have a meaningful loving relationship with God that Jesus promises all who would turn from their way of living and trust him as the master of life that he would go before them? I hope so. You have that way if you've turned from your way of living and turned to him where he's calling the shots. You can't be a believer in calling your shots. Sorry. We can have a theological debate about that, but if he's the master, then that means he's my Lord. And I can't control my life and call the shots for my life. Now, anybody perfect in that? No, we're all going to fail. But he's got to be our master. He wants to be our master. Do we have this loving, meaningful relationship with God? You do if you've turned from your way of living and you've turned to him. Because see, that's what makes the relationship real. It's not enough just to come to church. 
If I come to your house and sleep in your car, in your garage, when you open the garage door in the morning, am I going to be a car? No. So you can't just come to church and expect to be a believer. You have to allow the living relationship of God to interact within your heart and your mind. I hope that there's no one here that only imagines they had a relationship with Jesus. Oh, you, you may have been to church your whole life. You may know all the stories and all this stuff. But the best you have is an imagination. And yet God's heart is that you would turn to him. God's heart is that you would turn from knowing about him, turning to knowing him, and serving him and allowing him to be the Lord of your life as he leads you through life and seeking to make you the best at what you do. You know, when we're out preaching the gospel, especially in the Philippines because they've had female prime ministers, it's like, you know, who knows? One day you may be the prime minister of the Philippines. They all laugh. Why not? Why not a believer? Why not, why not each one of us be the, the, the person that everyone comes to at, at work? You know, your boss comes to you because it's like, because somehow you always seem to have the answer. And you tell him, yeah, it's not me, it's Jesus. Yeah, yeah, I know it's Jesus, but just, you know, what's the answer? Man, God's heart today is for all of us to turn and believe in his son, the one who created all things, the one who died for all people, and the one who presently holds all things in his hands today. And I don't know where you are. Only, I'll, I can only answer for myself. Can't answer for my wife. Can't answer for my kids. I can only answer for me. But I know this. God's heart and desire is for you to turn and receive him as the Lord and master of your life if you never have. So what do you desire today? Heaven? A relationship with Jesus? You don't have to imagine that. That's why Jesus died. So you could enter into, so you could imagine no more to where you could enter into this amazing relationship with the one who holds everything in his hand. It all exists because of him. You know, the only person holding me back in my life ever since I've been a believer is me. The only thing that's ever going to hold you back from entering into this awesome personal relationship where you surrender yourself out and say, Lord, I'm going to be, I'm going to be obedient to you to the best of my ability as you, as you guide me. I'm the only one that can hinder that. But God doesn't want us to be hindered anymore. The time is short. The day ver- days are evil. His return is imminent. Today's the day to be in the game. Today's the day to be using everything we have for his resources, seizing and making the most of the opportunities. It's critical. Why? Because there's one who sits on the throne. And his creation is crying out, holy, 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 Lord God Almighty, the one who is, who was, and is to come. And we got to be ready. Because as John sees it, it's only a matter of a millisecond when all of us will see it who are born again at the same time. You got to know that you know that you know. Not guessing. Guessing ain't going to get you there. You got to know. And it's not complicated. Either he's the Lord of your life and he calls the shots for your life because you've turned to him or or he hasn't. Again, Perfect in that? Say the answer. No. But my heart is perfect even when I fail. I know where to go to. I run back to the cross. Father, we're thankful that you love us, that you've called us, that you've chosen us, that you've written our, 